I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome Welcome to to Practice Practice Disrupted. Today we are talking to Christina Cho and Ming Thompson of Atelier Cho Thompson. If you're not familiar with the work of Christina and Ming, I first recommend that before you even start listening to this episode, you open your web browser and go take a look at their beautiful website. Um, It's worth browsing their projects um, before you get started listening because it is just incredible to see the breadth of work and some of the really unique projects that they are working on. And they are both extremely talented designers, and in addition, they're visionary entrepreneurs who represent a new generation of firm leaders. Yes, I'm I'm super excited because they stem out of Generation X, similar to myself. They are two amazing Asian American women. They are both mothers of two. They are educators and firm owners of all things considered a small bicoastal firm doing a lot more than just architecture. In developing this episode, we started with the question, what types of new service lines are firms designing? And this led us to think of inviting Atelier Cho Thompson to the show because we knew that they would make for a really great case study in a few different ways. We're going to be asking Christina and Ming a lot about their business structure, how they are diversifying their offering, and how they thought about the creation of their business. And so as you mentioned, Evelyn, as co-owners, they're collaboratively building this business from two different parts of the United States, which in its own right, that's pretty, um, you know, unique in terms of an architectural practice. I've heard of, you know, different companies having leadership at different offices, it's probably much more rare to have two co-owners that are on opposite coastlines. So from that single idea, they're a very innovative company, and you can see that they're willing to do things differently. And I'm hoping there are going to be a lot of really great, interesting ideas that Christina and Ming can share with us during the interview about business creation and being entrepreneurs. So Evelyn, I wanted to first ask you how you learned about Atelier Cho Thompson. Yeah, I first met these two when they had newly transitioned from working together at a firm to creating their own firm. We were connected through the Equity by Design initiative, or what was initially called the Missing 32% uh, work body of work that was rolling out of AIA San Francisco. So why don't I go ahead and read a little bit about the firm, and then we'll jump to the bios before we get into the interview. Atelier Cho Thompson is a multidisciplinary design and concept firm with offices in San Francisco and New Haven. They are engaged in the art of architecture, interiors, graphics, brand strategy, furniture, installations, and exhibitions. Their expertise and passions transcend the conventional boundaries between the disciplines, resulting in a richness born of the cross-pollination of ideas and strategies from across the spectrum of design. This integrated design approach produces holistic environments in which all elements are deeply related to each other and to the heart of a central concept. Christina Cho Yu is co-founder of Atelier Cho Thompson. She leads the San Francisco office and is a licensed engineer and architect in California. 
Christina received a BS and MS in civil and structural engineering and construction management from Stanford and her MARC from the Harvard GSD. She started her professional life as a structural engineer at internationally renowned Arab, working on projects like the California Academy of Sciences, labs, universities, bridges, and more. She's worked in LA, New York, San Francisco, Seoul, and Shanghai at firms like Shop Architects, Nerian Hugh, and Boland Swinsky Jackson. She's an, she's an adjunct professor at the California College of Arts, most recently teaching an advanced urban studio on the post-retail city, which has led to involvement in SPUR, um, which, if you don't know, is a San Francisco-based nonprofit working on the urban environment, and their working group for reopening the ground floor in a COVID era. Ming Thompson is our second co-founder of Atelier Cho Thompson, leading the New Haven office. Ming was a recipient of the AIA Young Architect Award in 2020. She received her education at Yale College and at the Harvard GSD. Ming has taught at the California College of the Arts and has served on design juries across the U.S. Ming is co-chair of the AIA Connecticut Women in Architecture Committee and writes and speaks frequently on the topic of equity in architecture. She is a first-year advisor at Yale and serves on the board of the Yale China Association. Let's cut to the interview. It would be great to learn how you guys decided to leave your full-time jobs and jump into this new endeavor full-time. Ming and I were at BCJ, which is an amazing firm. We've learned so much, and we are also looking for ways to work with them, actually, currently. But And we were working on projects like the Apple stores, like the flagship Apple stores internationally. I was also working on the Square headquarters. Really exciting projects. And then we did... Ming and I worked together on a parking day design. And I feel like that really sparked uh, this whole idea of starting our own company because we were not only designing the furniture pieces on the street, but we were working with different vendors. We were kind of creating an event. You know, we, we got two food trucks to come um, we did marketing for it. We created the sandwich board for it. We just kind of did this whole like 360 approach to designing that day and had such a blast and realized that we worked so well together. And it, it's got us to thinking that there were all these side interests that we had. Like Ming used to have a graphic design firm. She worked in museums and even thought that she might work in museums full time, but ended up going to architecture school. And um, I, too, really loved exhibit design. Um, and so we just had all these other interests that we'd kind of been pursuing maybe as hobbies or wishing that maybe we could do them again. And then we were like, you know, we live in Silicon Valley. There are a lot of fledgling companies that not only need architecture services, but probably need graphics and strategy and branding. What if we offered that full suite of services. I feel like that would really take off and work here. Um, and then we could also start doing some of the things that we like to do that we've been having to relegate to the hobby category of our lives. Um, and so we just kind of went for it and it actually worked. <laughs> and I don't know, Ming, if you want to tag on to that at all, or just even tell our listeners what parking day is for those who are outside of San Francisco and might not be as familiar. Sure. Parking Day is a, a project to take over parking spaces for one day 
to give them back to the use of the community. So people set up mini golf courses or like uh, sleeping pods or things on the street that show kind of inventive use of space. So for Christina and I, we came up with this uh, packable set of furniture and created a whole event with food trucks and neighbors and sort of programmed out the whole day. And it was a it was a great way for us to find out how we love to think about space holistically, not just from the design of architecture, but from the graphics and all the other elements that went into that day. Can you paint a picture for us about what that initial first year looked like for you? Sure. I think, you know, one important part of being an entrepreneur is you have to have a good helping of a naive hope. And that propels you forward through a lot of things in life. And so I think we went into this knowing that we had a dream for ourselves and a vision. And we did something that I encourage all young architects thinking about starting their own firm to do, which is to treat it very formally. So don't go into this in a haphazard way, but get a lawyer, get an accountant, set up a real business, get insurance, do all the things that are required to build a real company that will last in the long run. So I think for us, it was, uh, the first year was very up and down. I think we, we had projects at the beginning that didn't go all the way through, but those projects help us get out on our own, to, on our own feet. We also, at that, in our first year, both of us were pregnant. And, you know, I think we're really lucky to come of age in this time. I've talked to women of other generations about discrimination, about bias that they faced. And I think, of course, we see that to some extent in parts of our careers. But in general, I think especially being in San Francisco, a very progressive place, that we, we embraced who we, who we are and we presented ourselves to the world as, as who we are. I do remember there were times when we would mention to another female architect, oh, you know, we have, we're both pregnant, we're going to have kids and we have to get right back to work right after, right after the birth. And I remember one woman saying, yeah, right, that's never going to happen. But we did it. And we did it four times all together. <laughs> um, and now, now we both have two kids. And, um, you know, I think being women, we have, you know, as women who've been through pregnancy and been through having young children, we're lucky that we have uh, great partners who help share in the childcare. And that's one piece of advice I always give young, young women is like, actually one of the best things you can do for your career is choose the right life partner because you need someone who will share equally in all the complexities of modern life, having two careers and having kids. And I think we've been lucky to have clients who hire us because we are progressive and because we are young, because we are a new generation of architectural thinkers. And um, we, like a lot of women, have to roll with the microaggressions that we might face on construction sites. But in the long run, I, I think we bring professionalism and bring um, confidence and bring design expertise to our work. And that's what, that's what really uh, defines who we are to the people that we interact with. Not, not as much that we're women, but that we're professional and hardworking architects. I realize we fully jumped into how you guys met and, and just starting up the firm, but we actually haven't really talked about Atelier Cho Thompson and the services you guys offer. Christina, you began to touch on that. Do you guys want to talk about what's the different type of projects that you guys are working on in the beginning and how that's transformed over time and any pivots you might have taken and where you've landed now? Sure. Um, Christina mentioned that 
coming off of parking day that we are really excited about all the different things that we got to touch as part of the design work. And so when we launched the firm, we had this vision of a holistic design practice where first we are concept driven. So by having a concept, we have a kind of touchstone for the project that everything comes back to. And then we are a firm that does architecture, interior design, graphic design and strategy. And so all of those different disciplines come back to that central concept and help support it. So I feel like we've been very fortunate that we've uh, worked with clients and projects where we've gotten to really enact that vision that we set out for ourselves. So uh, for example, one of our clients in New Haven is a a great local uh, restaurant owner And we got to work with him on the architecture, the interiors, the graphics, and kind of the strategy for launching the vision of his company. And when you get to do all those things, not only is it better for the client because they have a kind of one-stop shop where they can work with one design vision and one design team on all of these things, but it's also really exciting for us because we get to make sure all those things work together rather than having a jarring graphic identity that doesn't go with the architecture. And it allows us, you know, as architects, the exciting thing is that we get to be generalists in a really good way. And we get to really embed ourselves in this restaurant project, for example, and learn a lot about the way he cooks, about his vision for ingredients, about his relationship with farms, and really build that all into the design vision for the, um, for the company. I think a lot of people would hear just the the different multidisciplinary services that you listed, Ming, and think that you guys are, are a lot larger than you are. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the size of Cho Thompson um, and how you're able to manage this diversity of services? Yeah, um, currently we are eight full-time staff and two interns, but we also have this program called Design Brigade. And Ming, how many... Yale students are in that. 15 students and then like 20 professional advisors, I think. So, and then like last summer, we had five interns. So we kind of start at eight and balloon up depending on how many interns we have. And we actually do have a lot of interns because Ming in particular is very involved at Yale. And then um, sometimes we have CCA interns too because of my involvement here. So we are a multidisciplinary firm, as Ming mentioned I think what's different about us compared to maybe some other multidisciplinary firms that are larger is that we hire multidisciplinary people. We're not big enough to have a graphics group. We finally got into a point where we have someone who was trained as a graphic designer, but, um, you know, everybody that we hire has an interest in more than what they were formally trained to do or have an interest or expertise in what they're formally trained to do. And so I think the difference in the way that clients will then interact with us or the experience that they'll get in working with us is that, you know, they don't start by having um, someone do their branding and then get handed off to a different person at the firm and then handed off to another person at the firm to do interiors. So you kind of have the seamless experience where you know that the same person that you explained your uh, business strategy to will we'll be working on your ultimate space. And I think that definitely kind of uh, sets us apart. So you guys are now seven years old as a business and you offer, so architecture and interiors, strategy and graphics and furniture and installations. Can you give us a couple of examples of different variations of how you've offered those services to different clients? 
Sure. Uh, there's a wonderful project led on our West Coast um, office uh, for a venture capital firm. Christina leads this project, so I'll just brag about her. That has been a beautiful execution of an integration between all of those things. So we were there when the clients helped started to name their company, and we came up with the logo and the graphic identity. As they moved into a couple different temporary office spaces, we helped set up those office spaces in a very light touch way. And then when they were ready to grow into their large, full office, we led the architecture and interiors for that. And we integrated the graphic design into the space through signage and different elements. Uh, We created custom furniture for lots of different parts of the project and uh, custom lighting, custom installations and created a really unique kind of space. It's a, an office that draws inspiration from homes, from libraries, from gardens, from coffee bars, and draws different typology um, together into create a very dynamic kind of office. And I don't think it could be nearly as interesting if we had only done one part of that work. So that was one where we really got to work uh, on a lot of different scales. And there are others where we, in a smaller way, in, in, in fewer disciplines, do similarly kind of cohesive work. We're we're doing this very long-term project with the San Francisco Unified School District to reimagine cafeterias in 90 different schools across the district. And the budgets are super low. I mean, as you guys know, public school cafeterias can be really tough places to be for kids and can, if we can make them better places to be, kids will eat, they'll be able to learn better because their blood sugar is up, they're having better social experiences. But the district doesn't have money to spend millions of dollars renovating every cafeteria. So we do a very light touch uh, project there where we come up with new furniture. We come up with new wall graphics that illustrate different aspects of the school's culture. And we come up with simple things like paint changes that can really make a big impact. So that's a case where we have architects and uh, interior designers and graphic designers working together to come up with holistic visions, but doesn't mean that we're building out a full space, but bringing that expertise to make really incisive and impactful change um, in these public school cafeterias. You know, actually, it's funny. I think that my marketing coordinator that I heard worked on your cafeteria project, Lucy Peterson. She was one of the graphic design students at CCA. She showed me that in her portfolio. Oh, yeah. We uh, we're, have this really great connection to CCA through Christina. And then we have several alumni from CCA in, as part of our staff. And we've had a really great time interacting with them through internships and through coursework to have them have input in some of the graphics. Yeah, they did some really good work. Very impressive. Yeah, she's really talented. I guess what I'm really curious about, you know, because you guys have worked in BCJ, obviously, that would be more towards that traditional model of um, architecture as a service and then I think you guys now have this experience of running the business with diverse uh, services you can offer your clients. So what have you learned by diversifying your offering? Has it creating new service lines? How does that help you as a business um, when you compare it to maybe more of a traditional model of architecture and how services are sold? Well, normal architecture is a pretty bad business model. I think any architect will tell you. They're frequently, you know, not able to bill for all the hours they do. And I've heard, I always thought this was a small architect firm problem, but I was talking to a founder of one of the biggest American architecture firms, and he said exactly the same thing, that, you know, 50 years into his practice, they still have that same problem. 
So, I mean, for us, it's a, it's first, you know, a great way for us to enact our creative vision. But second, I think it's a better business model. You know, we're all going through a very strange time in architecture right now. And I think having our graphics work be part of our portfolio means that we're going to be able to weather these uncertain times more nimbly. And I think having a very diverse portfolio means that as times change and as, for example, commercial office work is disappearing, that we're more uh, experienced and able to take on work from other typologies, other disciplines, and things that might not be traditional pure architecture. You guys even have a shop on your website where you sell some of di- some different products. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what you're doing with that? And it's, it's not only on their website, they actually have a full brick and mortar store. Um, I, I feel like that's a whole nother entrepreneurial pursuit altogether, but I'm, I'm sure that you guys think it's, it's all a part of kind of everything else that you're doing too. So in both of our offices, we're on the ground floor of the city. And that was a really important thing for us. You know, in New Haven, there's all these fantastic architecture firms, but they're usually on the second floor and they're kind of invisible to people. So we've always been really interested in engaging with the places that we are and with our communities. And when we went to look for an office in New Haven, we looked for a storefront office. And a lot of times storefront offices mean that there's like old renderings fading in the window out front or like old, old broken models out there. But we set up the store for a few reasons. I think first was that we've been designing products all the way through. Like I mentioned this, these fabulous tables, like this office, chairs, artwork installations, we're always making things for projects. And so we've had a long-term vision of wanting to really develop those projects. And that sort of led to us talking about a store. And so why not have a store? We could also sell great, beautiful products made by other designers in the U.S. and abroad. And so in our store right now, we sell amazing paper cuts by uh, ex-architect in San Francisco. We sell these pencils that we love from Japan. We sell uh, locally made paintings in New Haven. And the storefront, it's a store, but it's also a way to get people in the door to, to learn about and talk about design. So, you know, it's it's supposed to be kind of like a jewel box on the street. There's not a lot in New Haven of kind of like progressive design that's being sold in stores. And for, I mean, I, I still believe in in-person retail and that seeing things in real life, smelling the soaps, touching the pillow has a meaning and having a way to get people in the door. Then we often engage them and talk about design. So we've met new friends, new clients, new neighbors that way. And we have events in the office when, when the office is normally open, we have events like craft night where we have kids activities. We've also been planning um, like a speaker series that we wanted to have about design and its intersections with other parts of the city. And the store is kind of a gateway to that. It like is the, you know, it's the boundary between the street and the office. And it's kind of a permeable boundary where people can come in and engage with us and learn more about design. So it's interesting. I know it seems like it's kind of out of, it's, it's a totally different business model. But for us, it kind of felt like a natural outgrowth of, of all the things we're already doing. And I want to talk about one more case study from your firm that I think a lot of people in architecture know your work, but they may not know that you guys did it, which is the equity by design graphics. You guys helped with uh, coming up with the uh, graphics to support the data from the research project that was done around equity and architecture. And they were beautiful graphics. I mean, seriously. So um, how did you guys get involved with that? And um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Sure. We, in San Francisco, that project really started as something called the Missing 32% Project, which meant that women and men were graduating at about equal rates from graduate school, from, from architecture school. But years later, only 18% of licensed architects were women. So with that in mind, locally in San Francisco, this effort started to find out what's going on and what can we do about it. And, you know, if you don't have metrics, you can't find out what the problem is and then you can't find out what the solution is. So beginning with metrics, this project sort of has grown into something that the AIA nationally is invested in and has grown into a very large survey that's been done every two years. And at the time, we worked with Rosa Shang at BCJ, who really led this effort, and others on that group um, who have been our friends and our colleagues. So we've been kind of part of the group from the beginning, um, supporting them in lots of different ways. And we've been lucky to be their graphics partner on the survey and really getting to be part of the group that's seeing that data collection grow and look not just at women and men, but intersectional issues, race, looking at not just you know, two genders, but all genders and seeing how people can create actionable items. And I think, you know, all the work that AI is doing now with the equitable practice guidelines, those things are all part of an ecosystem that's creating real change in the profession. And so we've been really lucky to be part of one of that, uh, one aspect of that change. When you guys started talking about how you came together, you were both in Silicon Valley. Was it always the intention that you guys would be splitting coasts? And, you know, and how do you guys work between the two coasts the way you do? No, it was definitely not our intention that we would split. Although, like, both of us are really close to our families. So I kind of knew that Ming probably would move back east. I mean, the real reason was also that her uh, husband got a, he's a professor at Yale now. But we didn't even think for a moment when she moved away that we would ever split. Like, it's close to impossible to find. I mean, we, we always say that finding a business partner is like marriage. Who you partner yourself up with is that important. And so I didn't even think for a moment that we would split. And we've made it work through, you know, all of the great technology that's available to us today. And I think unlike other firms where, you know, they, they are a bi-coastal firm, but they kind of have their own projects and don't really communicate with each other. We really, I mean, we're just not that big for one thing, but we really work very closely together all day long on projects. For example, right now we're working on a large project, a school project in Houston, and there are, there's one person from my company, um, my firm working on it and three, three of them over there. And we are just uh, on Gchat, Zoom all the time, sharing Pinterest boards, um, using Asana, Google Docs, like all of these things really allow us to be um, kind of operate as one firm. And so we were doing that even before the pandemic. And so the, we really had a very seamless transition during this time. Do you guys have an idea of, of what's next? What do you see for the future of the firm going forward? Yeah, I think that a lot of our strategy work is actually coming into play a lot in, during this pandemic because it's an unprecedented time and business as usual does not work anymore. And so we've, we, we have a lot of clients coming to us because they know that we're agile thinkers. I actually just read this article 
that felt validating for us. I, I shared it with Ming and I was like, you know, this article is talking about how the future is about the importance of smart generalists who can make these connections between industries, these cross-disciplinary con- connections, and from that be inspired to enact change. Or, And I think that really hits the nail on the head for who we are. You know, we work in a lot of different industries and typologies. And during this time, we have uh, someone come to us wanting to reimagine the now defunct bankrupt department stores. Reimagine that space and how can that be a catalyst for suburban malls? We started the Design Brigade program to reimagine nursing homes and learning environments or how to reimagine learning outdoors when we can't go to school. And so I, I see our strategy work really taking off. And even if they lead to architecture projects, clients come to us because we know that we're able to think outside of the box when it comes to those types of typologies. There's been this whole debate. I'm sure you guys are aware. There are a lot of architects that want to be generalists, but there there is another perspective that the generalist kind of is going away because of like, if you take, for example, some of the larger public projects to go after that kind of work, you have to have so many projects to be able to compete. However, the way you guys are talking about generalist is really interesting to me because I don't know that I would have thought of you guys as generalists because I think you guys kind of fit within this whole other like dimension of you're kind of your own your own type of architectural practice, which is pretty amazing. So I was curious, like, can you speak more to the idea of the generalist and why you guys identify with that so much? I mean, I think like as Christina alluded that space has changed, like homes, my home now is also my workplace. It's also my childcare center. So there are collisions between all these different typologies that are happening not because of the pandemic, but just because of life in general are really changing. I think in that example of the office that we talked about earlier, nobody wants an office that looks like an old office anymore. People work in different ways in different places and they wanted to bring all of that experience and liveliness into their office. So I think we we're a smaller firm. So I think it does help that we're working on projects that are on the smaller side where we get to blend different typologies together. We are going after like a larger academic project right now. Where we're actually teaming with a, a much more experienced architect because you're right, there are some projects where they won't give you the project unless you've done the project 10 times before. So how is a young firm supposed to compete when that's the criteria? But I think we're saying that we can bring something special because we've worked on, maybe we haven't done this specific typology before, but this typology should be influenced by all these other types of work that are happening out in the world that we get to be a part of. I I also don't want to discredit people who have deep expertise in things. I mean, I got Both of us have master's degrees. I have two master's degrees, one in structural engineering, and I even have a license. So it's not like um, I'm advocating for dabbling in a whole bunch of things and not really being good at them. But I do see the value in diversifying and being able to connect dots between domains that aren't necessarily seen as related to each other. Tying into that then, and I, I know you guys have deep roots in the education system where you are, but how do you recruit for your firm then? And how, you know, is there something different in the process that helps you identify kind of the a multidisciplinary or more generalist 
individual who can really get excited about a lot of things and carry the project through on many different levels. Hiring is very important for what we do. Uh, We hope that when someone joins our team, they're here for the long haul and they become part of this, you know, family of crazy, dynamic, creative thinkers. And we hire, of course, we're looking for skills and Revit capabilities and all those things. But really, more than that, you need to hire for a kind of person who is kind, nimble, thoughtful, good at listening, uh, interested in the world in a very broad way. I feel like when I've looked back on my life, the people who've been kind of the most intense architects who only care about architecture in a very narrow way, those people really suffer a lot in the field because there's a lot of our day-to-day lives that is very dynamic and very diverse in the things that it touches. Like you need to be interested in the history of your city and interior design and architecture and like social change. And our conversations are wide and, and through our work, we're touching a lot of ideas about the future and what the future looks like for education, what the future looks like for restaurants, for offices, for homes. So we need people that are inspired and excited about those things. So I think we're looking for people with the kind of personalities and outlook that will suit our team well. And then, of course, we want people who are, you know, great designers and excited about design. I'm looking back at all everything I'm doing, and I'm like, I don't think I would be high on the list as a hire. <laughs> to Joe Thompson. Um, There's definitely better designers out there than me. You mentioned that you have such an entrepreneurial background. It would be interesting to know, you know, what are are some of the biggest takeaways that you wish you knew for all the young architects out there, or even the mid-career architects or, or those looking to start their own practice? You know, what are some of the biggest things that you wish you knew before you jumped into this? Architects in school learn a very limited vision of what architecture is. I don't think school needs to teach you everything, but I really appreciated my professional practice courses, my real estate development courses. So I do think it's important if you're still in school to look not just in your architecture curriculum, but in other departments for skills that you might need for one, for if you want to be a developer, if you want to be you own your own boutique architecture firm, thinking about what the skill set to collect while you can is. You know, I think it's lucky Christina and I really enjoy spreadsheets and we really enjoy um, project management because a lot of what we do, I think I made a chart once that was like, you know, I spend like 40% of my time just sending emails and like 20% do I get to design. And the bigger our firm grows, the, the more we have to delegate design out through the staff and we have to take on more managerial and more logistical tasks. So I think that's an important thing to note um, if you're thinking about going down the path of having your own firm, that it's not all, um, you know, sitting in alone, drawing on trace paper. There's a lot of project management skills that you have to have. The great thing about architecture is it's a long career. I feel like in other industries, there's age bias or there's a sense you're only really good when you're in your thirties. But I think in architecture, you get better and better as you go and great architects can be in their, are in their eighties. And so I think it's exciting to think that we have a long path ahead of us and we're going to be learning more and developing more expertise as we go. Yeah, actually Ming, your last comment made me think of when I was at the Monterey design conference, all the emerging architect winners were well over 40, I think. (laughs) And they were like, I'm emerging. I've been doing this for like 25 years, but uh, yeah, actually that excites me. 
Cause you know, like we can just keep learning and learning and learning and keep doing this. Another thing that came to mind is that you don't need to feel like you need to stay in your lane and you never know, you never know unless you try. So I think that's what's helped us grow our reach, our, our, our suite of services, because we did more or less start as a traditional architecture firm with the ambition of wanting to expand those services. And we just asked if we could do the graphics or we had personal projects that we could show to convince them to let us take on more scope. And I feel like it is a trend um, with our projects that we, the scope does creep. We, we are able to take on more scope on an ad service basis. That is um, because we just jump in there and start engaging in conversations beyond our assigned scope. Um, and that, I think that relates to what Ming was saying, being someone who can engage in these different diverse conversations kind of starts convincing clients that you can take on more and using personal projects or maybe even pro bono projects where they might be more willing to give you more scope because it's on a pro bono basis, building your portfolio in that way to leverage and, and be able to convince clients to have you take on graphics or branding or strategy. I think that's really important though, especially within architecture practice and an architecture culture. I, I talk to a lot of people who are like, oh, I can't pursue that job because I don't have enough experience or I've only been at the firm not even a year. What do I have to offer? I don't, I don't have a voice. I think we often forget that, you know, even if we're fresh out of college, we kind of have a lifetime of experience and abilities that we can begin to talk about and, and tell people about our capabilities and kind of, and, create our own seat at the table, um, rather than being, you know, waiting for the time when I have when I have all the credentials I need, and all the skills I need. So I think that's a really important point, especially, especially within this profession. You know, Evelyn and I are just really at the beginning of our own entrepreneurial journey, and we're starting to really dive into that. And so it was exciting to think about coming onto this call with for women who are all going through this process of figuring out what entrepreneurship and architecture looks like. So I'm interested if you guys can share any words of wisdom for new or aspiring entrepreneurs before we close the conversation. I guess Christina, Christina's last point was really good. I think she said about you don't know until you try. I would also say that you should proceed forward with confidence and with hope, but also with some knowledge. And so I think you need to kind of leap into things with a great sense of like naive hope, as I mentioned earlier, but I think you also need to do your homework and make sure that you know what you're doing in terms of starting a business, you know what your goals are. I think it's very important to have a mission before you start. Um, I know some architects who started their firms, not really sure why they're starting their own firm. And years later, kind of look back and say, well, wh where am I going? Like, where, how do I steer the ship if I don't know what the, what the goal is? So I think having a mission is very important. And I think knowing that there are resources out there and people that want to help you as you set up your own firm. Architects love to talk about their own careers and tell you their stories. And so I think it's great to reach out to people whose careers inspire you and see if you can learn from them. Um, and then really tap into the resources in your community to help you to help you launch your launch your own project. 
Yeah, I guess I also wanted to say entrepreneurship is not for the faint-hearted. Like I, I actually have heard some people want to do it because they're like, I'm going to have a baby. I think I'll start my own company just because they think it might be easier. I mean, I suppose it's easier in some respects in that you kind of are steering your own boat now, or you might have a more flexible schedule, but we certainly don't work less hours. <laughs> we just work at them when we want to, or not always when we want to. You know, there's a lot of late nights, especially right now we have limited childcare, so I'll be sending a lot of emails at 2 a.m. But um, aside from that, I think as Ming touched upon, Ming and I started this company with a business model. We had typed up a multi-page document about where we saw ourselves in a couple years, five years, 10 years. And I was elated to see that we had actually hit some of those goals that we had set for ourselves early on. We also have a profit and loss model that we keep, a spreadsheet that we keep updated constantly looking forward three to six months and making sure we're still okay. Um, So there's a lot of that less glamorous stuff going on behind the scenes for sure. Well, Evelyn, I think that was a really meaningful episode for both of us to be able to bring on two female founders and talk about entrepreneurship and the process of creating a business and all the things that kind of go behind the scenes in terms of thinking about business creation. Yeah, it was it was interesting to hear their backstories, right? Like they both seem to come from very entrepreneurial families, so it was interesting to see that that also has driven them in their adult life too. Um I I would say that my my parents while hard workers, I wouldn't necessarily label them as entrepreneurs. Oh, actually my dad is an entrepreneur and he I don't know if I've ever told you that. He has been a big inspiration for why I've been so interested in going down that path. No, actually, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I also think um, they they talked about having a good life partner in the episode. That seemed like a really um, poignant part of the discussion, just thinking about you know, not only our family, but our, you know, the people that we choose to create a family with become a really integral part of this process of trying to become an entrepreneur. And I I don't want to isolate any of our non-female listeners, but I also just, you know, being being women, being in this um, profession, trying to do something new and something different, like I would not be able to engage in the AIA in the practice of architecture and anything outside of my career, or as wholeheartedly in my career itself, if it weren't for the support of my husband, Ryan. So I'm incredibly thankful for that and glad I had the foresight to make that decision. But I don't, it was not on my like checklist of <laughs> things a life partner necessarily needed to have, actually, if I think about it. Yeah, I think I, I realize now after being married, like how important that is on the uh, qualifications list for a potential partner. <laughs> but it, it actually does um, matter a lot. And it really makes a difference in the process of trying to like, as you say, be very intentional about um, carving out this path for yourself in your career in a very ambitious way. I mean, I, I think that it, it really does matter. So one of the 
things that I wanted to follow up with you on is this idea of multi multidisciplinary firms, because I know we've had a lot of discussion offline about this, and I thought our listeners would benefit by hearing you talk more about what does it mean to be multidisciplinary. Right. And I'm, I'm going to be fair here. You know, a lot of people have a different notion of what it means to be multidisciplinary. I personally openly admit I roll my eyes a little bit when a firm says they're multidisciplinary and they say, we do schools, we do healthcare, we're in hospitality, we do commercial buildouts. For me, you're essentially offering the same services in different verticals. So my definition of multidisciplinary and what I think actually makes for a much stronger firm if their multidisciplinary stack is a little bit different, but they're actually providing different services to the same client or different services to different clients. Um, but it's the notion that you could actually provide a greater suite of services to the same client, which means that, you know, it's not, you're not just doing the architecture. When we all talk about architects wanting to be that number one consultant um, that, that our clients pick up as thought leaders to talk through business ideas, strategies, then I think it's really having the breadth of services and realizing that architects do much more than designing a building after you've raised the money for capital funds. So all the time I hear people say, I want to be the trusted advisor to my client. I want to be the first person that they pick up the phone with when they have any type of problem, not just a building problem. And by diversifying your services by showing value in other ways, then you actually become that trusted advisor. And it's much easier for your client to make those transitions. So for me, multidisciplinary really boils down to a variety of different services offer service offerings, not necessarily a variety of different market verticals. Right. And I think, for example, with Christina and Ming, First of all, what stands out is that they both have backgrounds in other fields, um, so that that was really powerful in realizing that that may have informed their decision to diversify their portfolio offering. And I know Ming is really talented in graphic design, and so you can see when you look at the website that the graphics piece really does show up. So I think that's a really clear example of how, you know, they offer the architectural piece, but they also offer the graphic design piece. So when I was talking to our friend Jen, who works there, what she was saying is she really likes working there because they will take a project that's, you know, as large as a building and then go down in scale to something that's um, really small and everything in between it. And it really allows for that flexibility to design different elements at a variety of scales. Absolutely, you know, and multidisciplinary doesn't necessarily mean strategy services, whereas, which is where I tend to fall, right? And there will be those people that argue that I am no longer an architect. So you can absolutely have like a, a stratification of services that still very strongly hold true to design. Um, I would say that Cho Thompson does both strategy and design very well. The other interesting thing, and, you know, and Jen, as a part of their firm, as an attribute to this, is that they hire multidisciplinary staff, right? That that their staff tend to do a lot of creative things outside of their work. 
you know, Jen happens to sew her own clothes. So I think their ability to be agile and to provide all of those services stems from the diversity of backgrounds of the people that they bring on and and the people that they have joined their firm. So let's talk about this idea. They actually have a shop for their business. They have, it's a part of their businesses. They'll sell really cool products on their um, online business. So, you know, we've talked in previous episodes about the idea of having a brick and mortar paired with the business to kind of welcome clients in or people off the street to learn more about your services. What are your thoughts on that idea? They've been really intentional about how they've set up their brick and mortar, right? They've decided that it should be on the first floor. And there's definitely the firms in Oakland that you walk by, you know, and you just see old, actually blueprints up in the window or just old plans. Um, but they're, they're inviting the community into their design studio, into their design space. You know, the pre COVID and, and post COVID, the plan is to have events there, uh, to really curate an entire conversation, a neighborhood community conversation around the design community. And I I think when you talk about kind of a very passive way about elevating not only what you're passionate about, but, but networking and integrating the firm into the community fabric, I think they've taken it to um, another level, but they've been very conscientious about how they've gone about and done that. And I guess you know, the number one thing that I I found really valuable about this episode was that they were talking about this idea that uh, business as usual does not work anymore. And for me, that's really powerful. I think that is the reality of where we're at right now with um, so much change in 2020. We knew Evelyn in 2019 and before when we were talking about growing this business that um practice was changing. I mean, it's been a huge theme in our podcast, but I think 2020 has proven that really, truly, we have to rethink the way we're doing things to work in a new era of the way the world's going to work going forward. Yeah, it's I've so I've seen a lot of firms struggle during this time. And rightfully so. I think it's an unusual time. We are in the midst of a global pandemic. I'm in Northern California, where we actually, to be honest, the smoke has been so bad here that we started wearing masks in the house. I've been taking ibuprofen to save off headaches. Um, so I, I feel for all those who've actually been evacuated during these fires right now. Um, I definitely, my, me and my family have definitely not borne the brunt of it, but the interesting thing, trying to get back to our topic, back on topic here with Cho Thompson, is that, you know, I've, I've heard firms say, you know, what do we need to do during this time to survive? You know, and they've, they've diversified their services to offer, to give their clients something, um, to offer during this time. Uh, I've heard firms, even large firms really struggle with, you know, what do we do with interns? How do we continue to grow the future of the profession at a time like this? And I feel like they've leveraged their connections, especially with Yale, um, with Ming more so than ever right now. They're engaged with the school community more, more than ever. They actually brought on multiple 
interns. And for all intents and purposes, we are talking about a small firm that is bi-coastal that is making it work during this time. And I, I, I feel like there's still those stories out there. And by the way, their core business also is not necessarily high-end residential because I, I do feel that that market, oddly enough, hasn't suffered as much as other markets. So I feel like they're, they're operating in what is usually a, diff- a difficult market. They, um, they've expanded their services to remain relevant to client. They've done it at a scale, which can be replicable to the other smaller entrepreneurs out there. Um, so there is a way to make it work through all of this. You just have to position yourself the right way and you have to not, not look at business as usual, right? What is, what is the new way of doing business? Mm-hmm. And I think our closing thought for this episode is to figure out what talents you have in-house and pivot towards uh, testing those ideas and seeing if it can work for you. Yeah, um, this is this is something that I've been, you know, everybody has been asking, how do we innovate around now? And I think, you know, architects and people with architectural training have an incredible creative spirit. And now more so than any other time is a great opportunity to um, unlock some of the hidden talents that your staff may not or haven't had an opportunity to share with the office and see if there is an opportunity uh, to create something new out of it. Thanks for listening, and we will see you all next week. Thanks for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Visit us at practicedisrupted.com to find out more about future episodes and the changing nature of practice. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can learn more about other podcasts in our community by visiting gablmedia.com. If you enjoy the show and want to hear more content like this, you can help us by leaving a rating, review, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to share with your friends and feel free to let us know what other topics or speakers you're interested in hearing about. Thanks for listening and see you next week.